Welcome to the Sisters Community Church Podcast. Well, as we move into this season of Advent, Pastor Steve Stratus kicks us off with a sermon on hope. Let's listen. So welcome. I hope you had a great week. Um, it's been a crazy week for me. Started out with a sore throat that I've had, seems like, for about four or five months. Then I had a root canal. Uh, and then... Um, then I found out I needed a crown on top of that root canal, and then the crown fell off after I got to it. And can you believe it? They only charged me three thousand dollars. <laughs> it's amazing how good they were to me. Are you kidding me? And uh, and uh, so I was pretty disoriented. So this morning when I came, uh, you know, snowing and everything, and I came and I forgot my glasses. So all of a sudden it dawned to me. Well, I don't have my glasses, so I know Cheryl has a whole pile of glasses behind the desk, because many of you have been really kind in leaving them here after church. <laughs> so I, I went to try to get one, and I got one that I could read with, but then when I looked out, I couldn't see any faces, and I said, I'm sure to get a headache after this. So I had to drive home and come back and uh, found out that it snowed another few inches. So this is a great morning for Jesus. Um, <laughs> This truly is a week of hope uh, and Advent. You know, as uh, Dean and Carol lit the candle and mentioned the fact that this is a season, you know, when you think about Advent, it truly is an event and it is an adventure. Because as we think about the children of Israel and we think about the adventure of faith of Abraham as he was called by God to be a blessing to the nations, there were a number of events, and we talked a little bit about those events last week in terms of what God was doing and how Christianity, in terms of its historic impact, is a series of events, one of which has impacted our lives. And so we live in a period of time between the first advent and the second advent. We live in the realization of what the prophet Isaiah was hoping for, and we live in that living hope that came as a result of the resurrection. And so hope is very much something that is based on God's promise, the certainty of God's promise. But oftentimes for many people, hope is twisted somewhat and it becomes uh, optimism. And so some of you know, some of you are optimistic and some of you are pessimistic and probably you're married to each other because <laughs> it tends to happen that way, right? We one falls in love with the other because he or she is a dreamer and the other one is very practical until their dreaming makes them crazy and their practical neurosis drives them out of the house. So you, you learn how to get along with each other, but the beauty of hope, biblical hope, it's not based on circumstances. It's based on the character of God. You know, I once heard uh, these two farmers that were always battling with each other over the issue of optimism and pessimism. And, and one, obviously, was very optimistic. And when it came time for him to plant his seed, he planted his seed, and the sun came out, and he was so excited about the sun coming out. Coming out. And then the other farmer, who was pessimistic, said, yeah, but I bet it burns all the crops. So a week later, it started raining, and so the optimistic farmer, he got very excited about how the, they were all being nourished, and it was getting water, and the other farmer said, yep, I bet it drowns them all. And so they were driving each other a little bit crazy over this time, and, and so, but the crop grew, and it was beginning to be productive, and 
But some birds came around and grabbed a few, and, but the pessimists to see what's going to happen, they're just going to all be eaten before you get to come to harvest. So finally, the optimistic farmer said, I, I've really had enough. And they used to go hunting together. So he said, I'm just going to blow this guy's mind. And he teaches his hunting dog, they're out in the boat, and they're hunting, and he teaches the hunting dog previously how to run on top of the water instead of swim across the water. This is an illustration. Don't look at me funny now. <laughs> so they go hunting, and he shoots the duck, and the dog jumps out of the boat, runs across the water, gets the duck, and brings it back to the boat. And the pessimistic farmer looks at him and says, he can't swim, can he? <clears throat> <clears throat> and sometimes I think we're a little bit like that because we're constantly evaluating things based on the circumstances that we're surrounded by. But we read a couple of verses, that is, Carol read a couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 9. And I want to read to you the verses that precede verses 6 and 7 in chapter 9, because I want you to see something about biblical hope. It truly is built on the character of God. If we were to go to Hebrews chapter 6, this hope is referred to as the anchor of our soul, built on the certainty of God's promise. And because it's impossible for God to lie we begin to hope on the basis of the character of that God, and we begin to live our life with great expectation and waiting. And we are waiting. And Advent, in terms of that first Advent, John tells us a lot. We've read through some of it. That first Advent, John tells us, why did Jesus come? Well, he came to take away sins in 1 John 3, 5. And then in 1 John 3, 8, it says he came to destroy the works of the devil. And John in his gospel says that Jesus came to reveal the Father. And then the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus came the first time, that he might come the second time. And so we live between the first advent and the second time. We live with the resurrection hope of that first coming and the death, burial, and resurrection in Christ. And we live our life today saying, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Because we look at our world and we recognize it's not a time for optimism. The 20th century was probably the most bloodiest century in the history of humanity. And as we moved into the 21st century, we see a world that has gotten so far away from God, and it is just heartbreaking to see what it is that we're having to address and feel, but we have a living hope. And so I want to read to the, you to these verses. You know, if any of you are read books, Ryan shared a book with me called God in the Manger. It's a book of devotionals around Advent written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a young pastor who opposed the Nazi regime, ended up going to prison for it, and ultimately was hanged by the Germans just a few weeks before the end of the war. Bonhoeffer wrote some amazing books, and Bonhoeffer wrote about the expectation that he had towards this living hope while he was in prison. Because prison was not, a, was not a place for optimism or pessimism. Prison needed biblical hope and a perspective that came from a resurrected Savior. So I just encourage you maybe to look at that. But let me, let me read to you uh, these verses in chapter 9 that were read. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 9 of Isaiah, Nevertheless, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. 
In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Would you pray with me? Father, open up our hearts to your word. It's living, it's breathing, it's discerning of thoughts and intents, divides, wills, hearts. And so I just pray, God, that you would allow us, based on your promise and the fulfillment of your promise and your promise to come again to be awaiting people with a hope that is built on the impossibility of God to lie, on the character of our Savior, on the one who has fulfilled so many promises that have been talked about through the prophets. And so today, Lord, we wait. We wait for you to return. We wait for the full restoration of your promise. We wait, God, for no more sickness, no more death, no more disease, no more heartache. God, would you do it and come quickly, we pray in Christ's name, amen. When we read the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is talking about a time in Israel when they were under incredible oppression. Isaiah's prophesying during a time when the nation of Assyria had come from the north and had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. They were in slavery. They were, in many ways, way beyond beaten and abused. They found themselves crying out to God. But when you read the book of Isaiah, it's an interesting book because it's a book of hope and it's a book of judgment. It's a book of hope because Isaiah is filled with prophecies that will one day be fulfilled and have been fulfilled initially by the Lord Jesus Christ, and then fulfilled as he comes a second time. But it's also about a time of judgment, because Israel had failed to live up to the covenant promise that they had agreed to. They had gone whoring after other gods. They had walked away from the God of Israel, and they found themselves living in what the reality of not allowing God to be their king, to be their savior. They found themselves worshiping another king. 
They found themselves under the bondage of Assyria. It wouldn't end there, because shortly after that, the Babylonians would come. And the Babylonians would put them into slavery as well. And it would be a time of tremendous heartache. Jeremiah says that there would be times where there was no food for them, and they would ultimately eat dead children. It was a time of horror, a time where the people of God were experiencing judgment like they had never known before. But God had never given up on his people. And so over and over again, like what we've just read, the prophets would say one day God would bring something. It would come in a day of expectation or on a day where they did not expect it to happen. Remember, this is 725 B.C. Jesus wouldn't show up for another almost 800 years. This was 250 years after they lived in peace and joy and harmony under the Davidic throne and the Davidic kingdom. But when David died and Solomon came in and the children of Solomon The kings of that time were not kings that gave their hearts to God. And Israel experienced such heartache. But God promised that God would come and he would deliver them. And when we read these first verses, I want you to understand that it is a time of of waiting. Waiting. I want you to think about it. 725 years, another 400 years. Waiting. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've been waiting for the marriage to somehow bring harmony to the home. You've been waiting for that prodigal son or daughter to come home. You've been waiting for the job that you're hoping to get. You're waiting for maybe your grandchildren to come over and visit more often. We've been waiting our whole lives for different things. And so as the children of Israel waiting, oftentimes we think that our waiting is determined by the circumstances in which we live. And the reason I want you to see the beginning verses, the circumstances were horrific. They were not circumstances that were, that were conducive to this kind of a promise. He, he says to them, he says, nevertheless, because in chapter 8 it's even worse, but he says, nevertheless, There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. What what the prophet is saying is that God is going to do something through the northern part of Israel. Naphtali, Zebulun, Galilee. But those were podunk towns. When we think of where God does something, where movers and shakers, if we were in Rome, we would think it was Rome. If we were in Israel, we'd think of Jerusalem. Certainly not in Nazareth. Remember what Nathaniel said? Nothing is good that comes out of Nazareth. And so when God is giving this promise, he's promising the Israelites that there will be victory. Something will happen out of those little towns. It won't be Jerusalem. It won't be where the movers and shakers are. It won't be because they've accomplished some great things. It will be because God is going to do something, and God is going to do it in such a way that men will never be able to take credit for what God does. If you remember the verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think 26 and 27, 
it talks to us about what God chooses. And if you remember, God doesn't choose the mighty. God doesn't choose the strong. God doesn't choose the intelligent. God chooses the foolish things, the weak things, the things that are not, so that the things that are not can become something all because of the grace of God. That no one would boast in their own self, but they would boast in the glory of God. This is what God is doing here. God is doing something that no one would expect him to do in a place that no one would ever expect it would be done. Think about it. Bethlehem? Jesus wasn't born in the Ritz-Carlton. He was born in a cave. He wasn't surrounded by dignitaries and kings, but shepherds who were the lowly of the low. He didn't come from wealth, prestige, pedigree. His parents were poor. Again, he was born in a manger. There was scandal all around him. She was a young, unwed, pregnant woman who in those days could be stoned for that. But because of the way that Joseph had favor on her, in this unexpected way, a savior is born. And God is doing something that would never be expected. We, we want to have the right environment. We want the right job and the right clothes to go to the interview for that job. And they made me get the right salary. And maybe even at that right job, finding the right woman that we could marry and have the right marriage. We want all the circumstances to be right in order for God to do his thing. And optimism might tell us that's true, but that's not biblical hope. Because what God does, he does in the place of our least expectation. God does it in ways that impacts the world and changes our paradigm. When you read Bonhoeffer, he writes these words. He says, in the midst of the deepest guilt and distress of the people, a voice speaks that is soft and mysterious, but full of the blessed certainty of salvation through the birth of a divine child. It is still 700 years until the time of fulfillment, but the prophet is so deeply immersed in God's thought and counsel that he speaks of the future as if he saw it already. And he speaks of the salvific hour as if he already stood in adoration before the manger of Jesus. For a child has been born for us. What will happen one day is already real and certain in God's eyes. And it will not only be for the salvation of future generations, but already for the prophet who sees its coming and for his generation. God was going to do something in the place of the least expectation. And so they waited, and they waited. It makes me think of a, of a poem you've heard me recite sometimes, because it's what the psalmist cried out all the time, how long, O oh God, how long will our enemies prosper? How long will I live in fear? How long will I be oppressed? How long will my children displease me? How long is the cry of the psalmist over and over again as they wait, as they live out their own advent, hoping for something against hope? How long, the poem goes, how long, how long, how long and deep are the stairs 
that I climb. Let me read a little bit to you. It says, how long and dark the stairs I trod with trembling feet to find my God, gaining a foothold bit by bit, then slipping back and losing it, never progressing but striving still with weakening grasp and faltering will, bleeding to climb to God while he serenely smiles, unnoticing me. Do you feel the angst? You feel the waiting? You feel the crying out? He goes, down to the lowest step I fall as if I hadn't climbed at all. As I lay despairing there. That's the waiting. It's the desperation of our hearts and our minds when we feel like we're in this place where all of our expectations has been dashed and all that we want to be right and good and pure and healthy and whole and our society and our families and our world is not yet happening how long and dark the stairs I trod as I lay despairing there. We'll come back to that in a moment. But notice what he goes on to say He says that in the midst of all of this crying out, in the midst of all of this striving for the right place, God is going to do something. What what Isaiah prophesied of, looking forward, we look back and we say, praise the Lord, it's Christmas. That's the spirit of Christmas. That's the meaning of Christmas, that God did something and we'll continue to do something. And we celebrate it when we come around this season and of Advent. We come around this time of hope. We begin to live in the reality of looking backwards of that hope and looking forward to the one who will come again. But look at what he says in verse 2. He said, the people walking, Isaiah 9, 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. Uh, the analogy is that God is, is looking at this time of darkness, this darkness for the Israelites, and he, he's bringing light to it. But this light they had no understanding of. Isaiah would go on later and say, God hides his treasures in darkness. What sometimes appears to be darkness to us is the light of God moving in a different way that we yet are to understand. This light this hopelessness, this darkness, God says, I will bring light. And think about the fulfillment of this promise. Let me, let me read to you Matthew chapter 4, because Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 4 after he's come on the scene and he's been um, gone through the temptation of the wilderness after he's been baptized. And he says, he says these words in verse 12 of Matthew 4, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. He withdrew to Galilee. Remember Galilee of the nations? Remember the Zephulun and Naphtali? Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in their area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. We just read it. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You know, it really gets me when people don't recognize the years that have spanned from the words of the prophet 
to this Jesus who fulfills all those words. To think that what this man said 780 years ago is now fulfilled by this one called Jesus. He's the light of the world. He even said it in John 8. And so this light comes, the promise was, that a light will come. And Jesus said, this light has come. And we celebrate that reality because the light indeed come. We call it Christmas. And he goes on to say here that uh, in his coming, and what makes it so unique, we talked about it through John, there is no other religion where God comes to humanity. There is no other religion that God steps into our suffering. There is no religion where our God identifies with us and our weakness and our foolishness and takes it all to the cross and in his death for us transforms us, we who are weak, are strong in him. And we begin to live out the celebration of Christmas. It's so much more where we begin to live out that hope and we begin to celebrate. And he goes on to say, if this Jesus came in the flesh, this incarnation is what makes our life different. So the light has come to dispel the darkness. But it's come, as he says, through this this God-man, if you will, this one that ultimately is the Savior. And there would be battles to be fought. We, we read this in verse 5. It says, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And we live in that realm, right? It's yes, but not yet. We've yet to see this fulfillment. Israel didn't. For seven years, 700 years, they were in bondage. They never saw the fulfillment of that. At the end of those 700 years, after 300 years after Isaiah spoke these words, there were 400 years of silence. There were no prophets. There was no voice from God. All they had was a promise. And Christmas is that place of hope where this Savior steps on the scene and Matthew 4 tells us that Jesus goes to the Naphtali, goes to the Gentile nation, if you will, at Galilee and says, light is being fulfilled in darkness. And so then he says to us, this reality is that he comes and the beauty of his coming is in that Christmas. Our waiting in some ways is over. And while I lay despairing there, listen, a footfall on that stair, on that same stair where I afraid falter and fell and lay dismayed, and when hope had ceased to be, my Lord came down the steps to me. That's Christmas. Well, we live in that world where the Israelites felt the pain and now we live in a world where we've seen the first coming and we wait for the second coming because we too see the pain of a society that's lost. It's lost their perspective. It's lost their God. It's lost their moral compass. It's lost the truth of the gospel. This God-man, this child has come. But notice the last part of this is the beauty of it is that in verse 7, notice what it says. Or verse 6, it says, for to us a child is born. And notice the next part of that verse. To us, a son is given. Given. It's a gift. We need to receive it by grace. This gospel is this gospel of grace in the midst of 
all the pain and all the suffering and all the waiting. While we wait, we have been given a promise. You know, I heard a pastor tell a story a while ago about a man in his church. And he had a conversation with the man, and he said, yeah, the ushers, I think I drive the ushers really crazy. And he said, why is that? He says, because when I come to church, I always find my seat, and I always save a seat next to me. And they're always, the church is growing, so they're always telling me to push in. Uh, but I saved that seat. And so the pastor says, so tell me more about that. He said, you see, a few years ago, I went through an ugly divorce. And because of it, my daughter and I are estranged. And we used to go to church together, and our relationship was very different. And now she doesn't come at all. But I drew her a picture of the sanctuary. And I drew a picture of the rose. And I drew a picture of where I'd be seating in the empty seat that I would save for her. And day after, Sunday after Sunday and month after month and, and year after year, he waited. And then one Sunday she came. And she sat next to him. And they hugged. And what a gift. See, I don't know what you're waiting for. But if you're human, you too probably have some agony about waiting for something. And if we're truly in love with our Savior, we're too in agony about waiting for the full restoration of the second advent. So I, my prayer for all of us this season as we live in this hope, we would recognize hope is not based on our circumstances. It's based on the certainty of God's promise. It indeed is the anchor of our soul. And we need to anchor because we live in times that are incredibly stormy, incredibly tumultuous, and we need something, not that we hold on to, but something that holds on to us. To you, a son is given. And may this week we continue to praise our God for the truth that it is impossible for God to lie. You see, you're not the only one is agonizing. Romans 8, 22 and 24 says, all of creation groans in expectation, waiting for the fulfillment of the sons of God. We're in good company. So I pray we would continue to press in to that anchor and allow him to give us the stability we need because what God has done in the past, he will do in the future because it's impossible for him to lie. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come and we are grateful for this season. We are so grateful because as we come to the communion table, we recognize that the cross and the death and the burial and the resurrection has truly given us a living hope. So while we are here this morning waiting in this Advent season for that second coming, we're halfway there. We're trusting you who fulfilled the promise to come the first time to come again. Thanks for listening. We hope this encourages you to dive deeper into your relationship with God through prayer, scripture, worship, and community. 
We hope you can join us on Sunday mornings at 9.30. For more information, go to sisterschurch.com. Be blessed, friends.